good news. We shall prevail. We're studying through the book of Acts, and I would encourage you to get your Bible. Turn with me to the uh, book of Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. It was May of 1982, and a lanky ball player stepped onto the field for the Baltimore Orioles playing shortstop. And uh, nobody paid very much attention to him that day. I mean, he didn't do anything extraordinary. He didn't make any errors, except for some people thought at six foot four, he was too tall to play the position of shortstop. From all appearances, this was just another game, and this was just another uh, uh, player, another shortstop. But it wasn't just another game, and it wasn't just another shortstop. That game was what baseball fans came to call the streak. From May 30th, 1982, till September 19th, 1998, when he voluntarily set out a game, Cal Ripken played 2,632 consecutive major league games. Now, that was a record that nobody expected would ever be set, 2,632 consecutive games. Why? How could he do that? Well, he just kept plugging away. He just kept showing up. He just kept getting up every day, going to practice, going to games. He just kept going. And somewhere along the line, they started calling Cal Ripken the Iron Man. Maybe you've heard that, the Iron Man, because he just kept going. And, and today, uh, I want you to think about how this man made the most of his potential. In fact, that's what I want to talk to you today about, how, making the most of your potential, your God-given potential. And as someone who has been created in the image of God, as someone who has been saved, who's been transformed, who has been indwelt by the Spirit of God, gifted by Him. See, you have incredible potential. Incredible potential. Far more than you probably would ever even imagine. And, but, but understand that in the eyes of God... Uh, potential does not come through talent or brilliance or wealth or abilities. It doesn't come through you. It only comes as we choose to surrender ourselves to God and allow him to use us to accomplish his purposes in our life. It's about surrendering as we sang this morning. What shall I do? What can I do, O oh God, except surrender to you? That's what we must do. And, and the good news is, is that no matter who you are, as a believer, you can reach the potential that Jesus has for your life simply by surrendering to him. Now, that's what we see in the life of the Apostle Paul. He was a person who lived every moment of his life with that kind of Iron Man faithfulness. He just kept getting up 
day after day after day and going back to the work, surrendering himself repeatedly to the Lord to accomplish what God wanted to in his life. And so we're going to be reading in Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 17. Before we do, I just want to give you a little bit of context so you understand where we are. When we come to, to verse 17, Paul is in the city of Miletus. Now, Miletus is about 37 miles south of Ephesus. And if you remember, that's where we left Paul the last time when we, le- when we uh, left Acts chapter 19. And there was this riot that had broken out. Well, we learn in the next uh, 16 verses of chapter 20 that Paul left there and he went back through uh, Macedonia and Greece through the churches that he had established back up in that area and he took up a collection. He took up a, a love offering to help the, the saints back in Palestine that were, that were dealing with a, an incredibly great famine in that land. They were, they were starving, they were destitute, and Paul takes this, this love offering to these people, and he's, and he's taking it up, and he's accompanied by some representatives of these various churches that have given. That was their kind of form of financial accountability. And so Paul wants to uh, help these people, but everywhere he has gone, Paul has encountered opposition from the Jews. And they have caused him to have to change his travel plans on multiple occasions. And they have delayed him. Paul wanted originally to get there for Passover because that's when the most people of the Jewish people would be in Jerusalem. And he could, you know, help, we could distribute that uh, help and, and help as most people as possible. But now his plans are hopefully now to get there by Pentecost. That's 50 days after Passover. And, and, and so Paul is going to go to Jerusalem, and he's coming back now. And when he comes to Ephesus, he knows, man, I've spent three years there. I've come to love these people. Man, they love me. And if I go there, I will never get away in time to get to Jerusalem. By Pentecost. But he also knows that they will never see him again. And so he, 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 he wants to give some final words of encouragement to them. And so he calls for the elders of that Ephesian church to come and meet him there in Miletus. And that's kind of where we pick up here in uh, Acts chapter 17 with Paul speaking to these elders. Now, now we're going to read we're going to read the beginning and the end of what happened, and then during the message we're going to fill in some of the other things that Paul says to these elders. So, Acts chapter 20, verse 17. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come, he said to the, uh, had come to him he said to them. You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's go down to verse 35 and pick up there. In everything, 
I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And they began to weep aloud and embraced Paul and repeatedly kissed him. And and, and grieving especially over the word which had been spoken that they would not see his face again. And they were accompanying him to the ship. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the example that you have given us in the Apostle Paul of a life lived to its fullest potential. And we pray that today as we look at this life and at this example that you would help us to to learn how we can a better way fulfill the potential that you have instilled in our lives. That we can honor you, that we can glorify you, we can find that that fulfillment. And I, I know, Father, that in this moment, in this place, in this room, there are so many uh, concerns, worries, and needs And you know them all. And I just trust you that uh, even though we deal with these specific set of scriptures today, that you would minister to the needs of the hearts of the people here in this room. God, wash me in in the precious blood of Jesus. Let me be a surrendered vessel that you can use today to speak to your people and to meet their needs. And Lord, we look to see what you will do through this time In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to think about um, what happened after Paul had shared with these people that that they would never see him again. It was a very emotional response. I mean, they, they cried. They began to kiss Paul repeatedly. You, you can see a love here that these people had for this man, incredible love and respect. And, and they prayed together. And, and when he got up to go, man, they went all the way. They, they went on the ship with him. And, and I'd say they probably were standing there when that ship left the harbor and watching it sail out over the horizon. You ever done that when, you, when someone you love is, is leaving and, and you know you're not going to see them for a long time and just kind of, you know, you just watch them all the way out the driveway. The car is gone and, and you're standing there and the tears come to your eyes sometimes. This was a, an intensely emotional time for the Apostle Paul. But in the course of it all, these people, these leaders also heard the heartbeat of a man who had, was determined to be everything that Jesus had called him to be. And that's, that's my prayer for you and for me, that we would be what God really wants us to be. You know, I don't want to live my life and then look back with regret. I don't want to live my life and then look back at the end and say, man, I had so much potential, but I never realized that potential. Potential is a great thing at the beginning, isn't it? I mean, it's great to say that somebody has a lot of potential, but potential can also be a sad thing 
when someone looks at their life and say, well, I had a lot of potential, but I never realized that potential. God wants you and I to, to live out the potential that he has placed in us. And he wants to do something great in us. So when I talk about potential, I'm not talking about what a coach might say or what an educator might say or a business leader might say or or even what your parents might say about your potential. I'm talking to you about what God would say about your potential. And I want to show you four strategies for living up to your fullest potential, God-given potential. And the first strategy is this. Live to serve. Live to serve. If you want to live life to your fullest God-given potential, live to serve. In, in verse 18, Paul says, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time. Now, the, the English Standard Version puts it this way. You yourselves know how I lived among you. Well, how had Paul lived? Well, according to verse 16, he had lived serving the Lord. Now get the picture. From the first day that he set foot in Asia, that moment, the whole time, how did he live? Serving the Lord. That's how I live my life. Live, he lived to serve. Now, now serving, serving is slave language. Serving doesn't mean you just work for someone. It means you're controlled by someone. Serving doesn't mean that you're employed by someone. It means you're their slave. And Paul had lived his life as a bond servant. In other words, he had willingly put himself under the control of God. To be his slave. Now how did, he, how did he serve? Well how Paul served is how we need to serve. And that's what we learn from this part of the, the, the text. First of all, serve with humility. In verse 19 he says, Sir, I, I serve the Lord with all humility. Now humility in the Bible doesn't mean putting yourself down or belittling yourself. It means seeing yourself from proper proper perspective. Because if you think about the Apostle Paul, I mean, here's this this man who was incredibly educated uh, like nobody else in the ancient world and very intelligent. He has the authority of an apostle. He's done incredible things like healing the sick, casting out demons. In the first part of chapter 20, he even raises a boy from the dead. And he's done incredible things when it comes to to evangelism and planting churches. He spread the gospel over the known world like nobody in history has ever done. And yet the Apostle Paul doesn't see any of that as coming out of him and his abilities. In fact, he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 5, he says, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. And he, and he referred to himself in, in Ephesians 3.8 as the, the least of all the saints. And in 1 Timothy 1.15, he says, I'm the foremost of all sinners. See, Paul saw himself as a servant through whom God was accomplishing his work. 
And Paul is simply saying, I am a surrendered vessel that God uses. And, and when I surrender, God brings about the fulfillment of the potential he's put in me. And so he not only served with humility, but he, he shows us we, we need to serve with suffering. In verse 19, he continues, And with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. Serving God in this broken world can result in great suffering. See, like Jesus, Paul was a suffering servant. Now think about that. But did you know that you, God calls you to be a suffering servant? 1 Peter 2.21 Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. As we serve Jesus in this broken world, friends, there's going to be suffering. Just as Christ suffered, so also, Paul says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 2 Timothy 3.12. Because he says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Acts chapter 14 tells us. See, and Paul talks about two kinds of suffering that believers experience. First, there's internal uh, suffering. That, that's, what he, that's what he means when he refers to those tears. Uh, there are many things that can cause us to experience internal suffering. You know, some of the things that Paul grieved over, that Paul suffered with, he, he grieved over lost people. In Romans chapter 9 and verse 2, he says, I have a great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For whom? For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Let me ask you, have you ever had that kind of grief for someone that you love, that you see that, is, that they're, they're dishonoring God and they're destroying their own life? They refuse to turn to God? And you look at them and it, it just breaks your heart. It just grieves you when you see what's happening in their lives. You know what? Paul also cried over weak, struggling, sinful Christians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 4, he says to these kind of believers, he says, Out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears. The, the Christians in Corinth were weak and, and, and struggling and sinful. And they brought incredible heartache to the Apostle Paul. He saw what was happening in their lives. You know, there are people who say they're Christians, and yet the way they live brings such heartache to God and, and to others. Because they're not really surrendered to God. They're not really following God. They just are, they've got the terminology. But that's all you see. And, and then Paul wept over the threat posed by false teachers. It was that threat that caused Paul to say in, to the Ephesian elders in, in verse 31, he says, therefore be on the alert 
Remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. It it blows my mind when I look at the plethora of false teachers out there in the world. And it breaks my heart when people in our church come to me and say, boy, I love so-and-so, listen to so-and-so on the radio. I've been reading this book by so-and-so, and I'm going, come on, give me a break. Have you not been listening? Don't you get it? This person is a false teacher. They're leading you astray. And it's everywhere. I mean, it's everywhere. And it just, it just tears you up. It causes you to suffer internally. And, but Paul not only had internal suffering, he had external, experienced external suffering. Verse 19, it continues, with, with, and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. Now, I won't take time to rehearse all the things that we've seen the Apostle Paul experience in suffering through, as we look through the book of Acts. But just remember how many times that he was lied about, that he was uh, intimidated, threatened, that he was beaten, that he was thrown in jail and even stoned. I mean, everywhere he went, he was experiencing this plot of the Jews against them. They were constantly coming against him. And so all these things... Paul suffered. So when we serve, we serve with humility and we serve with suffering, but we also serve with Scripture. Look at verse 20. He says, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house. Now, what exactly was it that Paul was declaring and teaching? Well, that's simple. He's declaring the truth of Scripture and how Christ was the fulfillment of all Scripture. And that word shrink is an interesting word. It was, it was a nautical term. And it means to lower your sails, to let your sails down. See, in ancient times, uh, sail, when a storm was brewing, the, the ships would oftentimes take their sails down and just allow the, the storm to blow them wherever it would rather than keep the sails up and try to stay on course because that was so dangerous. It could rip a, a, a ship apart. And so they would lower the sails in the, in the storm. And Paul was saying, no matter what kind of truth what kind of storm the the truth of the word of God brews up in the culture around me. I never took my sails down. I kept on course. He's saying no matter matter how unpopular the truth is, I didn't quit. No matter how blustery the winds of resistance, I never backed down. No matter how high the waves of opposition, I didn't compromise. I told you the truth when it was pleasant and when it was unpleasant. I told you the truth when when it was easy and when it was hard. I told you the truth in public and in private. And I I told you the truth when people were paying attention when they weren't. What he's saying is, I I gave you the whole counsel of the Word of God. I gave you all truth. All truth. Now, 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us what's really profitable. It says... All scripture is inspired by God and is what? 
It's profitable, right? It's profitable for reproof, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. I mean, teaching involves communicating the principles of Scripture. Reproof uh, is, is a way in which we apply the Word of God in order to bring about conviction of sin. And then there's uh, correction. It, it helps us to know how we're supposed to turn, what we're supposed to turn away from, to turn away from sin and turn to God. And then training in righteousness is that process by which we're becoming more like Christ. In other words, it, it, it deals with every aspect of life. And Scripture is what's really profitable. So if we're going to serve the world, we're going to serve the Lord, we have to do that with Scripture. And Paul tells us in verse 17 that when the man of God, when we do that, the man of God will be adequate, equipped for every good work. So we're serving with humility, we're serving in suffering, we're serving with Scripture, and then we serve with passion. Paul says, In verse 21, I did not shrink from solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That word solemnly testifying is is actually just one word in the Greek. And it's a very strong word. It indicates that Paul testified about salvation uh, with great intensity and passion. He was never casual when it came to the gospel. Paul says, I not only did not lower my sails when it came to declaring, declaring the truth of Scripture to God's people, I didn't lower my sails when it came to declaring the truth to lost people. I kept count giving them the gospel. And he says he served Jews and Greeks. Now, neither one of those groups were particularly open to the gospel. The Jews, he says, well, they, it was a stumbling block for them. Uh, to the Greeks, well, it was, a, it was a, a foolishness to them. You see, evangelism has never been easy. There's, it's rarely is it easy. Most of the time, it's very hard to do. But, you see, when we are serving the Lord, when we are surrendered to him and making the most of our potential, we, we do that with passion. Because that's God's heart. It's God in us doing that. There has to be passion. Jesus, and you, you think about this. What's the most profitable thing that you could ever give someone? The most profitable thing that you could ever give someone is the truth about salvation. As Jesus says, for what shall a man profit if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? There's nothing more valuable that you could ever give anyone than the truth about salvation. But listen, it takes courage for us to tell people the the bad news before they get to the good news. It takes courage to tell people, listen, you're a sinner. And you're facing the judgment of God. And you need to turn from that sin and you need to turn to Christ. The good news is is that Jesus has already paid the penalty for your sin and he will forgive you and restore you. But see, it takes, doesn't it take courage? It's hard to do, isn't it? We just don't do that naturally. Only when we are surrendered can we do that. So we live to serve, then we have to be humble in our perspective. We have to be willing to undergo suffering. We have to be ready to use scripture. And we need to go at it with passion. 
know, God made you to serve. You're awful quiet. Do you all believe that? That God made you to serve? And the test of real uh, servanthood is when someone treats you like a servant. Right? You ever had anybody treat you like a servant? What, what's, the, what's, the, what's the tendency for us? How dare you, right? You know, it, it's easy to serve when everybody is encouraging you and patting you on the back. It's easy to serve when they give you a big dinner and they have a special service for you and give you gifts and say wonderful things about you. And by the way, praise God, thank you. I, I appreciate that so much. Sometimes we just need a little, you know, a little push, a little encouragement, don't we? Thank you. But, you know, when, when people don't care, when you show up and people say, well, I don't care, or when people resist, then that's hard to be a servant, isn't it? It really is. But God has called us to, to be servants. Rick Warren tells a story about Dan Cathy, the president and C- CEO of Chick-fil-A. And he was out in Southern California checking on a, a, a new restaurant that they were building. And he and uh, uh, Rick were going to get together for lunch. And they, so they met up at the, at the, at the building location. And after they'd been there a while, they decided that they would go next door for lunch, which was a Taco Bell. And so they go into this Taco Bell, and they've been in the construction site, and so they go into the restroom to wash their hands. And when they go in, that restaurant and the Taco Bell, I mean, it's filthy. It's a mess. And and Rick Warren says, I just stood there in amazement as Dan Cathy, the CEO of Chick-fil-A gets out these extra paper towels and begins to clean Taco Bell's restroom. Cleans the whole thing, leaves it sparkling. And we're standing there and goes, well, thank you, Dan. <laughs> and he said, he said, Rick, so we always teach our staff that you leave a place better than you found it, even if it's not yours. Nobody that day knew that the CEO of Chick-fil-A had cleaned, at Taco Bell, had cleaned their restroom for free. That's a servant. When nobody knows, when nobody understands what's happening, that's a servant. And that's the way the Apostle Paul served as well. I mean, there are times when our service is known. And there are lots of times when it's not. But it doesn't matter whether it's known or not, a servant serves. It doesn't matter if you're treated like a servant or not, a servant serves. Live to serve. Here's a second strategy. Give yourself away. Look at verse 22. And now, behold, bound by the Spirit... I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and affliction await me. Now, to to make the most of your potential, you need to give yourself away. 
That's what the Apostle Paul did. Paul says he was bound by the Spirit. And you know what that word bound means? It means to have prison chains on. It means to have shackles, handcuffs. Paul presents himself as going to Jerusalem as a prisoner of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because he's a servant. He's a slave. He's doing what the Holy Spirit wills, not what he wills. He, he's on his way, and, not, and he doesn't have literal chains on at this point, but what he does know is that when he gets there, he's going to have literal chains on. He's doing exactly what the Holy Spirit tells him to do. And he knows that it's not going to be good. In verse 24, it says, But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself. Now, see, Paul had come to a place in his life where he could say, my, my life, my desires, my plans, my preferences are no longer the primary thing, my, my primary concern in life. How hard is that? Well, that's really hard. I have a hard time with that because I've got my plans. I've got my preferences. I've got my desires. Don't you? But, but when you give yourself away to Jesus, then you say your plans, your desires, your will is primary in my life. And look at what he puts in place of his personal desires. Verse 24 continues. So that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. He had surrendered himself to Jesus. He had given himself away. Why? Because he trusted in the grace of God. He trusted that God's grace would be greater than anything that he could ever work up for himself on his own. And that's the hardest part for us, is to really believe that God's grace is greater than even what my desires are for myself. But God has a plan that's better than what we have. And you know, we're so afraid to give ourselves fully to God. It's like, you know, it's like a kid at the edge of the swimming pool and you're trying to get them to jump in and you're down there in front. Everybody's probably experienced this. You're trying to get the kid to jump in the pool. You're down there and you're saying, come on, I'll catch you. you you'll be safe. And the kids, and they're looking at you. They, they trust you. They, they know who you are. You're big enough. It's not that far, but there's, there's just that hesitation. It's just, it's just hard to let go and Trust yourself fully to that, to that person in the pool, right? And we have that same struggle oftentimes with God. We, we know that God is big enough. We, we know what he says. We, we see it very clearly out there, but there's just something innocent. Just can't pull the trigger and jump, right? We know that's the way it is. And so Paul was a, an example for us of somebody who jumped, who jumped into the grace of God. And, 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 and we know that he fulfilled his ministry to the very end of his life. As his death grew near, he says in 2 Timothy 4, 7, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. 
I've kept the faith. There's a guy that doesn't have to look back with regret. There's a guy that didn't have to look back and say, boy, I had a lot of potential, but I never realized it. Paul says, I have finished the course. And after he had paid the ultimate price for his devoted service to Jesus, he no doubt heard from his beloved master, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And old friends, our ears and our minds cannot conceive of what that joy is going to be. Because we're doing it by faith. So when we take that leap into the grace of God's arms, we, have, we just don't even imagine what God has for us. You know, I think we could compare a, a surrendered life to a glove on a person's hands. Uh, on its own, a glove is, you know, it's lifeless. It's, it's limp. It just flops over. But when you take that glove and you put a hand into it, all of a sudden that, that glove can do everything that that hand can do. Now, when I was, when I was a kid, we used to get these old leather gloves. And they were sewn all the way around. They were really thick. And when you put your hand in there, you could barely bend your fingers. You, you could hardly get them around a, a shovel or a pick, you know. And it took a while of working on those gloves before they it started to mold to your hand. It started to take the shape of your hand. It started to give some flexibility. And you still couldn't even, you know, do something very subtle. You couldn't pick up anything small or tiny, but... but it began to take on the shape of your hand and begin to be something that you could be used. Today, you know what they do? They have these gloves now. And boy, they're, I mean, they're the exact contour. They follow the exact contour of your hand. So much so that a surgeon can use them to carry out fine, skilled surgery. It's an amazing difference. And you see, this is what God wants to do with us. He wants to... He wants to come into our lifeless, useless lives, fill them, take on his character, and so that we can do everything that he would want to do through us. We become the the instrument, the tool that he uses in, in this world. You and I are it. And so what how do we do that? We surrender, we give ourselves away. And see, when when when, when we don't give ourselves away, well, we're like those old stiff gloves. We've still got our own way of living, our own resistance. We can't do the things that a skilled surgeon can do in a, in a yielded glove. Where are you? What kind of glove are you as a Christian? You're this big, bulky glove that's got its own ways? Or are you that fine yielded, molded, yielded glove. See, when you become that glove, then you can fulfill the potential which God instilled in you. And let me ask you this question. Are you giving God yourself? Are you giving your your time 
Is God giving, are you giving God your time? Are you, think about this way. Our days are made up, our lives are made up of days. Our days are made up of hours. Hours are made up of minutes. Minutes are made up of moments. And, and maybe you could do it this way. Maybe you could think, if in this moment, I can surrender to Jesus. Can you surrender in this moment? What about make it two moments, three moments? What about what if that moment becomes a minute? What if that minute becomes an hour? A whole hour where you really surrendered to Jesus. What would happen if that hour became hours? And what would happen if those hours became a day? A day where we really surrendered. What if those days were to become actually become a week? And a week became a month. And a month became a year. And a year became years. And years became a life. If we were surrendered to God in the moment, in the minute, in the hour, in the day, you see, we would be living a life that fulfilled the greatest potential. So I ask you, are you giving, what kind of time are you giving God? Are you giving him your time regularly? Or have you got a time designated for God and then the rest over here is yours? That's the way we look at it. I'll give God this and I'll take the rest. And so what do we do? We have a life that's not really yielded to God. We have a life that is giving acknowledgement to God. Are you giving God your money? In our world, our money represents our time because that's where we spend most of our time (laughs) is trying to make money. And so if you're giving God the tithe, well, then it's a representative of your time. That's a very easy way to stop. I mean, if you can't give God that, why would you ever surrender to anything else? And I'm just saying, you understand, this, this, this idea of giving God includes everything that we are, our talents, our time, our treasure. And here's a third Here's a third strategy. Share God's saving message. Look at verse 25. And now behold, I know that all of you, I know that all of you among whom I have been preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Now, the word translated innocent there in verse 26 is a Greek word from which we get our word, English word catharsis. Catharsis means to, uh, cleaning, to clean. And Paul is saying when it comes to the, to the blood of the lost, I am clean. I, I, am, I am innocent. And he's saying that when it, he's speaking in spiritual terms. And here's the idea. He's saying that people who are lost are headed for judgment. People who are lost are headed to an eternal hell. And 
anybody that, has, that God has brought across my path during my time here in Ephesus, nobody is going to go to hell because I failed to tell them about Jesus. Nobody. Now, that's an amazing thing to say. I'm innocent of all blood. Paul's actually making a reference to an Old Testament passage, Ezekiel chapter 33. And in there in that passage, he says this. He says, now, as for you, son of man, I have appointed you a watchman for the house of Israel so that you hear a message from my mouth and give them warning for me. Now, look here. Here's the glove. Ezekiel's the glove. I've got a message, Ezekiel. I'm putting it in you, and now it's your job to warn them. He's a glove. So here's what happens. Look at verse 8. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you will surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require from your hand. But if on your part you warn a wicked man to turn from his way and he does not turn from his way, he will die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your life. That's what Paul's saying here. I'm I'm innocent of all blood because I've warned everybody that God has brought in my path. And God says if he gives us a, a message to warn a person about their sin and we don't warn them, then they aren't going to experience the judgment that is promised for sin, but their blood is going to be on our hands. Why? Because we didn't, we weren't a glove that was yielded to God. We didn't share the message. Now listen, our job is not to make them believe. Our job is to tell them the truth. What they do with it, that becomes between them and God. But our job is to tell them the truth. And God is looking for a people that will be yielded to him to tell people the wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, if you see that picture, think about that picture. In in ancient days, cities were surrounded by towers. I mean, by walls. And and in in that wall were were towers or turrets. And in each of those towers was a watchman whose job was to scan the horizon and watch out for the enemy. If the enemy started to come toward them to attack, then it was the job of the watchman to sound the alarm and to tell everyone, get ready, the enemy is coming. Now, what happens if the man, the watchman, sees the enemy but doesn't warn them. What if he leaves his post, runs and hides? And the enemy comes in, what's going to happen? Well, they're going to be destroyed, the people of the city. Who, whose blood is he responsible for? All the people that he didn't warn. And that's the picture that God has given us there. In fact, you know, it's interesting. Historians tell us that even the enemy had contempt for a watchman that failed to warn the people. If, if a, a watchman failed to warn the people and went and hid when they had conquered the city, they would, they would take a detail and go around the city and search out those, those watchmen and they would drag them out into the center of the, of the court and they would make them responsible for going and picking up all, dragging all the bodies to the center of the square of the city where they would be burned. And it was very common 
uh, the, the, the historians say, for the watchmen in that context to begin to beg the enemy to kill them because it was too difficult for them to go and drag sometimes the bodies of their own family members out to the square. Now, I don't want to have the blood of lost people on my hands. You know what? I already got enough. I already got enough. I don't want any more. And can I tell you one more time? Your job is not to make them believe. Your job is to not take down your sails in the resistance, but to keep up the sails and tell them the truth. And finally, love people sacrificially. Can I read this last little section to you very quickly? Beginning verse 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among you, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departing, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each of you with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. In everything, I showed you that by working hard in this same manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Notice what Paul did. He loved these people sacrificially. He reminded the leaders to watch out for themselves. You have to take care of your own spiritual life before you can take care of other people. And then to watch out for the church, to your, your overseers of the flock. And it takes love to be able to do that. And he reminded them of that responsibility and reminded them of the danger that loomed. He says, listen, fierce wolves are going to come in. They're not going to spare the flock. In fact, some of those are going to rise up from your own people and they're going to say deceiving things that will lead people astray. And, and then he reminded them of his own example, how that for three years he had been constantly warning each one of them with tears. He's telling about all the things, the struggles that they're going to face. And then he commended them to the word of God and to his grace. And, he, and, he, and he, had, he says, you know, I've worked with my own hands. I haven't taken anything from anybody. Uh, and, he, and he understood that following Jesus means that it's more blessed to give than receive. He summed up all these things, and, and it's called sacrificial love. Do you have sacrificial love for other people? Now, Jesus has sacrificial love for you because he's already demonstrated that. He's already died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins so that you can be forgiven. So he's demonstrated he has sacrificial love for for you. The question is, do you have sacrificial love for others? 
if you're his servant, if you give yourself away to him and he fills you, you know what's going to happen? You are going to have that. You're going to have that sacrificial love for others. Only Jesus can give us real sacrificial love for others. In 2006, following Hurricane Katrina, the United Way and uh, MTV partnered to to, uh, call for young people, college students, to go to New Orleans and to help people whose homes had been destroyed, to rebuild those homes. And so they began to uh, use their, uh, MTV began to use their nationwide network. They called in a bunch of different celebrities to be spokespeople. Uh, They began to run all these ads and commercials. They were asking young college students to take their, their spring break and to go to New Orleans and work for that week to help these people who had been ravaged by Hurricane Katrina. And with all that money and advertising, how many people do you think they got almost a hundred ninety eight and, and let me say i 'm glad that MTV, MTV and United Way would want to do something like that i 'm glad for those hundred kids that went and worked anytime somebody does something to help somebody else, it should be commended. But let me tell you about something else that happened at the same time at the same time, another group called Campus Crusade for Christ, also now known as crew sent out the similar call for the same group of people for the same time period to do the same kind of work. They didn't have a nationwide network to advertise on. They didn't have all those advertising dollars. They didn't have uh, celebrities to speak on their behalf. But they did have a core of young people who had been transformed by Jesus Christ. And when they put out the call on that time, they sent over 7,000 students to New Orleans work in that situation real sacrificial love for others flourishes when we have been transformed by the love of Jesus Christ nothing else can change that our our determination uh, our our efforts can fix that only God coming into us, a surrendered vessel, can bring about that real love. How do you show real sacrificial love? You serve with humility. You serve even when you have to suffer. You serve with scripture. You serve with passion. You give yourself away and you share the gospel of Jesus Christ with people. You do all those things and listen, it will cost you. If you do all those things, it will cost you. But you will benefit other people and that's why it's called sacrificial love. And when you love sacrificially, then you can make the most of the potential that God has given you. Let's pray.